retell the story about Absalom and get it up to this place? How did it get to this place where Absalom is dead? And for all intents and purposes, David's reign as king is faltering. Before the, the affair that he had with Bathsheba, it was at a pinnacle. But now it's spiraling downward. It's spiraling downward. And uh, it's not going to get any better right now. So we're going to look at this aspect of Absalom. How many of you remember the great old classic radio program? And now the rest of the story oh, with yeah. Oh, yeah. Harvard, Paul Harvard. I love those things. You know the story behind the story? Well, that's what we're doing tonight. The story behind the story of 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33, where David is, is grieving and mourning a son who was trying to kill him said, if only I had died instead of my son. How do we get to that place? Let's look at Absalom and see some of the, the things that we know about him. Uh, first of all, we know that he was one of David's sons. Uh, David had a complex and sinful, by God's standards, uh, married life. He did what all the other kings did. He married to secure borders. It's not that he loved them, but he, he kept marrying women until he got it right, I guess. <laughs> or got it wrong. But, uh, so one of his sons is Absalom, another through another mother, a brother from another mother, was Ammon. And uh, you remember Ammon uh, lured through counsel that was given him, lured his half-sister uh, to care for him and then he, he raped her. You know, no color covering it up. He raped her. And then Absalom decided he was going to take vengeance on his disgrace of his sister and so he plots for two years. Two years he plots to get Emma to the place and then has him killed. Then he runs, he flees, he goes into exile. Another thing we know about uh, Absalom was Absalom was a striking figure, as they say. Um, can I get somebody to read 2 Samuel 14, verse 25? Who'll do that one for me? Okay, Quentin's got it. Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Whoa! <laughs> huh? I had no idea that anyone could hear that. What was that from the back row? I have said that uh, people say that about me. That's <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be talking about thinking of oneself more highly than you ought to think. A little bit later on in our study of Absalom, you may regret your remarks a little bit later because Absalom. 
he didn't just think he was the best looking. He, he, he was. Everybody said he was, the, he was the most handsome dude in the entire kingdom. Uh, from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. Now, I know some people that are, you know, strikingly beautiful or strikingly handsome, but they have ugly feet. How many of you know, you know, some people that... This guy had the whole the whole deal. He was he was uh, handsome. There was not what does it say? There was not a blemish in him. Physically, he was a kingly, handsome dude. But he had some internal issues. Anybody ever come across somebody that was strikingly beautiful or handsome? but had some internal issues that were ugly. That's, uh, that's Absalom. And he loved his hair. He loved his hair. And we know that because the scripture tells us so. Can I get someone uh, to read 2 Samuel 14, 26? Okay, let us go. Okay, I see. I just had that. Okay, and when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. <laughs> when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. Whoa! <laughs> the guy. <laughs> that's what he cut off. Five pounds. Five pounds is what was on the barber's floor. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Let's see, who's who's got a good head of hair here? We're kind of scared. <laughs> well, well, Samantha does. Samantha. Uh, would you be willing to let Christy reach over and feel the, the weight of your hair? Okay. Five pounds, I don't think. How much how much would five five pounds of hair look like? It'd be like a bag of potatoes. Like a big old mom. Yeah, five-pound bag of potatoes. Wow. How much hair you'd have to put in. I mean, this is a detail that's it's amazing to me. He's in Guinness Book of World Records in his time period having the biggest head of hair. Now, ladies, how many of you have ever had your hair really long? Tell us about the problems associated with long hair. Tangles. It's in, Tangles. It's in the way of everything. It's in the way of everything. Headaches. Headaches. Yes. Give you headaches. What do you think five pounds would do to you? On top? And that's just what he cut off. Was left on the floor of the barber's chair. Uh, barber shop. Uh, what are some other uh, problems that can come with long hair? In the churches we we pastor, we've had some girls that were uh, their family was very very conservative and did not let them cut their hair, and uh, they they had challenges. Any other problems that you had? Yeah. It takes a long time. It takes a long time. It takes a long time. To, to deal with it. It's not just 
wake up and go, and you're ready to go out the door. No. You know, there's some, there's some time involved. Uh, what are some other issues? It takes a long time to dry. Long time to dry. Yeah, a lot of care. <laughs> That's why all of us have short hair, pretty much. But, but, but uh, anything else about the care of long hair? He got caught on everything. He got, gets caught on. Whoa, you know, uh, I've I've seen the the one family. She had uh, three daughters, and they all had hair you could sit on that long. They, the mother was proud of it. The daughters, not so much. <laughs> and they were always, we, they'd be in youth group. Ow! Sat on my hair. Yeah. I'm curious, do you know if they still have long hair? No, they did not. They, 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 uh, when they left the house, they left the hair. Uh, they didn't want that anymore. It, there, there's challenges, and I would bet, if I were a betting man, that none of them had five pounds of leftover cuts uh, on the floor. I, I, it's just amazing. Think of having a five-pound bag of potatoes or sugar or flour sitting on your head at all times. That's just the leftover. We don't know how much the whole head of hair was, but man. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm stuck on this, but it, it, it really amazes me. He was a he was a vain guy, and so he was handsome. It doesn't say that his hair was scraggly. He spent some time on his hair. And uh, he would. He probably had people do it for him, you know. I bet he did. But, son, you know. but it still takes time, yes. you know. <laughs> my, my, my. I bet they were thrilled with that. <laughs> so, just leave it alone. Five pounds of hair on your head. And that's just the leftover after he has an annual cutting. He cuts it how often? Once a year. How often, guys? You know, some of you are follically impaired, but uh, uh, <laughs> but those of us who still have hair, how often do you have to get a haircut? Two weeks. Two weeks? Yeah, that's for me. Two weeks. One week. I just got it. Okay. Well. <laughs> He does it. He lets it grow a whole year. And he does this all the time. This is an annual event. It's time for the haircutting. And uh, it was uh, mentioned in here. And later on, we find that his hair and his arrogance gets him into trouble. So... These are just some of the cursory things we know about Absalom. We know that he took revenge upon his half-brother for the rape of Tamar. We know that he was enraged. He plotted it for two years. What does that tell you about Absalom? It's a premeditated murder, and he 
He strategized it out. He knew that it was wrong. He knew it was against the law, and yet he did it anyway, and just told his father to deal with it, basically. He didn't actually tell his father anything. He just left, left town. He went in self-imposed exile. And if we read the scripture correctly here, there's different concepts and ideas. But if you read it carefully, it appears that from the time that he went on self-imposed exile from Jerusalem, he never, ever spoke to his father, the king, again. Have you had, any of you have knowledge of, or in your family, have people that just haven't spoken for years? Huh? Anybody? Yeah. And uh, just, they lived for a good chunk of this time. They lived in the same town still. He went back to Jerusalem, lived there. And uh, they never spoke. Never spoke. Uh, it's one of those things where uh, I come across it quite a bit. Uh, I was at a, at a funeral one time, and people are, feel obliged to introduce me to people. Uh, I hope there's not a test at the end. I just hope. Because I don't, I don't know who would, you know. They don't even know half of their relatives. But, but they're introducing the people as, oh, Uncle Joe's here. With the favorite uncle. We haven't seen him in 20 years. You know, I told you last week about my uh, uh, my grandmother, and for the last three years of my father's life, she never spoke to my dad, nor he to her. Stubbornness in the keen side of the family. Um, it's a hostile environment. You don't say. What? I can hear him all very clear. Uh, just this is a side note. Did you have a chance to listen to any of Phil's sermons yeah. that Rachel's yeah. been posting? Yes. <laughs> the, the one you posted? Yeah. Right. I got about halfway through. I'm doing it. Oh my goodness! Yeah. My subject flat out. My my subject. Uh, if you are on Facebook and you go to Rachel Leopard, that's my daughter Rachel up in Cleveland we found some old cassette tapes of some of my son's sermons man it was a word in season. man if the kid can preach I would heartily recommend it, it's not just because he's my son other people have said as, as Andy uh, listened to one the other day powerful word powerful words. and uh uh, that's a side note. I'll leave that alone now. Okay. So a self-imposed exile and never really mended the relationship with his father, nor did his father reach out to him. This is a, a, a place where David... What does David say to the whole country of Israel by not dealing with the the sins of his own family, the kingly line. What does this say to the to the land of Israel? That it's okay, it's, it's normal. Yeah. Or that he can't take care of the country because he can't take care of his own family. Yeah, he can't. Has the family. What else does it tell us? 
Yeah. It sets a bad precedent for the rest of the people that, you know, in his uh, domain or country. How could he judge anybody mm -hmm. a, a, as a leader if he can't control and he doesn't deal with it? He just, it's as if it never happened. He mourns, goes to the funeral of Emma, but he doesn't do anything. And so this empowers rebellion. And we, we see that happen uh, over and over again. Never again spoke to his father, and, and David never dealt with him over the, the murder and rebellion that he was. The word got back to David that he was backstabbing him. David didn't do a thing. He loved his son. Well, that's commendable. But if your son is doing something that's detrimental to you and the kingdom, it needs to be dealt with. It was not. This is a very dark time in David's reign as king because it's kind of he's just kind of thrown the door open, and if one person gets away with it, anybody can get away with it and have a rebellion against the king, and no plight. Another thing about Absalom we learned is that after he had turned a sufficient number of people away from his father, the king, he starts marching on Jerusalem with his chariots and his armies. Does anybody remember how the technique that uh, Absalom used to wean people away from the influence of the most popular king in the history of all of Israel from then till now. How did he wean him away? Didn't he do a whole lot of, um, hey, I, you're not appreciated, but I, if I were king, I'd appreciate, I would do this, I would have done that, that kind of thing. David had become a recluse. He was a, a man's man, he was a, he was a people's king up until this time uh, of his sin with Bathsheba and he just kind of went into seclusion. <coughs> he was always out talking with the people, seeing what their problem was, how he could help them, but now he's insulated. He's separated from the people. So Absalom goes down to Hebron where the roots of, of Israel are with David, uh, Ab, uh, Abraham's tombs and those kind of things down there. And people are coming to Hebron uh, with concerns over what's going on in the land. You know, so-and-so uh, killed my brother, this happened, they stole my oxen, whatever. And Absalom would sit at the gate of the city and take everyone who came. And what he would do, oh, that is terrible. That is awful. You know, somebody ought to do something about that. But I'm not king. If I were king, I'd do something about your problem. And they, how would the people walk away from that kind of a conference with the, with the son of the king? What would be some of the attitudes they might have? Unsatisfied with David. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, David, he, he doesn't come out and listen to us anymore. 
I used to, I, I was a big, I, I had David bumper stickers on my chariot. I, you know, I, I, I was, I, I had yard signs, you know, David for king. I was, I was way behind him. But uh, he has not done anything for me lately. And this, this kid, well, first of all, he's handsome as the day he is long. And look at that hair. And, and, and uh, uh, he's got braided. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. And, and he's, he spoke to me what I wanted to <coughs> That whole concept of itching ears and surrounding people with those that you want to, they're saying what you want to hear, which is today's modus operandi for, for preaching and teaching. Uh, say what people want to hear, you'll build your crowds. Obviously, I'm not doing that. <laughs> crowds are here. But, uh, but the, the, uh, the reality is, they walked away from that saying, boy, what a nice young man. What a nice young man. He didn't have to, but he sat and listened to me. What a nice young man. And good-looking, nice hair, and he, if he were king, he promised he'd do something. I don't know if this was the beginning of campaign promises or not, <laughs> but uh, I have a hunch. If only I were king. It was deceitful, because we find out that when he became king, he didn't do any of the things he said he was going to do. Did exactly the opposite, but uh, so it may may have been the beginning of campaign promises, but it was deceitful, deceptive, and it was against his own father, his own father. So, absolutely decides when enough of these people over a several year period, enough of these people have been swayed and influenced. He's wined them and dined them and made them promises and and if only I were king. How many of you have ever seen uh, that happen in other scenarios at businesses, at uh, other institutions or whatever, where someone would kind of sneak in the back door with promises? I've I witnessed it in, in church situations. If only I, you know, and they got their position, but they didn't do what they promised to do. So, he's ready to march on Jerusalem. He has a sufficient army behind him with soldiers, with weapons, chariots, armed and, uh, individuals, and word gets out. He's coming to Jerusalem. What's David do? He's in disguise. 
He has on the apparel of a slave. Shoes or sandals were as a symbol of a free man. Slaves were kept under control by making them barefoot. Why would being barefoot keep you in line in Israel? The terrain. The terrain. <coughs> yes. Uh, a couple of years ago, they asked me to do a, a drama up at Camp Syker, down where the well is at the front of the property. And they wanted me to do, I had done it several years before that, uh, Christ on the Road to Golgotha. And carrying my cross through there and then stopping and talking to the people. And uh, I didn't think a thing about it. When I was younger, it didn't matter to me. <laughs> but I went barefoot. One of those stupid things that you realize about one minute after you step onto the, the rocky pavement. <laughs> what was I thinking? Many of my cries were real. <laughs> the blood was real on the bottom of my feet. No slaves, no shoes. You're not going far in rocky Israel. It's rocks. <clears throat> and uh, so he put on the garb, he covered his head, he didn't want to be recognized, he dressed in rags and, and was shoeless, leaving town. And he turned around and wept as he left town. That's where we left off last time. Turned around and wept. He's being driven from his kingdom and his throne by his own son. Somebody, try and several somebodies, help us understand what are the potential feelings that David has when he's betrayed and his own son is behind him. What are some possible feelings fathers here express if your son was out to kill you? You know, what might that do to you? Disappointment or fear? Fear, disappointment. Disbelief. Just total disbelief. How does this be? Embarrassment, also yeah. probably afraid for your son. Yeah, For the reason he ran is he didn't want to fight his own son. Yeah. He didn't want to fight him. He, he didn't want to he didn't want to deal with him. That's really what got him to that place anyway. Uh, so he's he's conflicted about all those things. What are some other possible feelings that could have been going on in David's heart? Barefoot, he's put aside his kingly robes. Okay? And he's he's barefoot, he's he's acting like he's a slave, and he's weeping as he looks back at Jerusalem. He stops by to pray at the tabernacle on the hillside <clears throat> on his last he thinks it, it's the last time he's going to see Jerusalem that he fought for <clears throat> could be his broken heart total broken his heart. Love no more. everything he poured into him is gone the bible has a lot to say about being broken hearted doesn't it and that that aspect of a broken heart 
it's hard to put it into words, but it's a, it's kind of all the ingredients that you mentioned put into a big vat, stirred up. That's what's going on inside of David. The shame, the embarrassment, the fear, the not wanting to deal with his son, the, the all that he had built for all the time he was king. All the the great victories, all it's all past. And he's he's just a wounded person and he's heartbroken. Have you ever had someone close to you stab you in the back? Literally. But not <coughs> figuratively stabbed up. <laughs> Figuratively, stab you in the back. That's close here. What, what does that feel like when maybe nobody here has had that happen to you? Nobody's ever, you know, was close to you. They say you have to be close to someone to stab them in the back. And it hurts all the more. Anybody throw some stuff? I don't want to know the story. But throw some things out there if you've been stabbed in the back. <clears throat> What it feels like and what's going on. Physically sickening. It it just it's like a, a nausea that won't go away. In situations that I've dealt with, that was the thing right there, Carissa, that was the thing that kind of aided me. Have you ever been nauseous for a long period of time? Mm -hmm. That was the feeling, like somebody kicked you in the stomach and left their foot in there. Yeah. And just, uh, <clears throat> that's David leaving town. He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. He doesn't want to even fight his son. He's running, hoping he won't have to. So we pick up our story now. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was reading recently, there's a kind of a nugget nestled in the story of how um, Absalom is a type of Judas. You know, and of course David, you know, he's the son of David. And in Matthew particularly, you know, time again, people call Jesus the son of David. And we look at his portrayal by Jesus, and it's almost like a kind of a hidden picture mark. Yeah. You know, yeah. The deep hurt of Jesus at at the the craftiness of Judas, but also when he looks around in the garden, they're all gone. All of his disciples, Simon Peter, who said, "Even if they slay me, I'll still follow you." Right. Totally deserted. Totally alone. At that kind of thing. So, here's another thing about Absalom. Can I get somebody to read 2 Samuel 18 18 for me? Mary Lou's got it. I mean, we've got her on heavy-duty detail tonight. Yeah. She's doing candy bars. She's taking a roll. 
and she's reading scriptures for us. 1818? 1818. In 1818, we took a look. Remember that? <laughs> I have all these songs from the 60s in there. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the King's Valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no sin to carry on the memory, no sin, I have no son. <laughs> you sure you want me to read this? Freudian slip there. <laughs> I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom, Absalom's Monuments. Easy for you to say, yes. <laughs> what does this tell us about uh, <clears throat> the psyche of Absalom? Unfettered vanity. Vanity? Uh, nobody, monuments are generally not built by the person they're honoring. It's just a kind of a thing, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I like that Washington monument to look like that. No, he wasn't around. And, and Lincoln wasn't around for his monument, was he? No. And uh, Mount Rushmore, they were all gone by the time that was carved. So by nature, it's the people saying, we want to erect a monument to our great king, Absalom. Now, he built it himself while he was still alive. And where did he build it? The Valley of the Kings, and that is in the Kidron Valley, as you're looking out from the walls of Jerusalem, going across the... Here we go. As you're going out, you're looking from the city of Jerusalem, and you're looking across, there's a massive cemetery in the Kidron Valley. It is the Valley of the Kings. Not to be confused with the Valley of the Kings that's in Egypt. That's pyramid stuff and all that kind of thing. This is the Valley of the Kings, that where the kings were buried here. Uh, we have reference of several different kings that were buried here. And so before he dies, while he's still living, he erects one to say, he hasn't even been crowned king yet. And he erects this. No. He's too busy stabbing his dad in the back. He's not even king yet. And he erects a monument to himself in the Valley of the Kings. <clears throat> Some of you have heard this story before, and I apologize, but it bears repeating. King Herod, the evil king who built the temple with slave labor from Israel and he killed several of his own sons, killed one of his wives because she looked at him wrong. Uh, she, the slogan in ancient Israel was, it is better to be Herod's turkey than his son. 
evil guy. He knew that nobody liked him. He wasn't an Israelite. He was an Idumean. He was appointed by Rome to be the king because they were kind of second cousins down the, down the pathway. And so he wowed the Romans and said, I'll do it the way you want it done and I'll be the king of the Jews. But he wasn't a Jew. People hated him, but they feared him. They didn't rebel against him because if you even talked about it like his sons did, uh, they were invited to the house, to the palace in Caesarea Maritime. And he was a builder. He was all called Herod the Great because of all of his building prowess of all the different things that he built. Uh, castles and monuments and Masada and the temple and all those kind of things. Well, he built out on uh, a peninsula, out into the Mediterranean Sea, he built his palace. And he had piped in for this pond uh, swimming pool, basically, that he had in front. All of his rooms looked out upon this pond. You have the Mediterranean Sea, which is a salt sea. You have the pond sticking out, jutting out into the Mediterranean, but it's fed with fresh water from a hundred miles away. Wow. The guy was just top-notch area. Well, his, his three of his sons have been invited to the palace for supper. And they come and he says, well, while supper is getting ready, why don't you just go out and frolic in the pool for a while. Yeah. So they went down and they never came out because he had soldiers come and hold their heads underneath the water until his sons drowned. Hated by people but feared. And Herod knew that nobody liked him. Nobody liked him. <laughs> And he wasn't paranoid. It was really true. Nobody liked him. So Herod, and this is historical fact, it's in writing of Herod's uh, memoirs. He called in his leaders of his forces, his army, and he gave instruction that when his death was announced, they were to go and kill every priest and all the priests' families in all of Israel. He said, well, why would he do that? He said, it's because, this was his rationale, when I die, people will rejoice. No, they won't. They will remember when I die. Over 20,000 people from the household of the priests will lay in blood on the streets of the cities. And when they think of my death, they will weep over my death. That was how warped he was. Absalom said, I don't have anybody to carry out my name. I'm going I'm to make a name for myself. I'll even make a monument to myself. That 
same kind of arrogance was in Absalom that was found in Herod the Great later on. So, he made a lot. What else does this tell us about uh, uh, old Ab Abby? Abby the king. Anything else? We know, uh, as was pointed out by Jamie, he was very handsome. And uh, gray hair. <laughs> but what, what does this tell us about Absalom? Anything else? Within the, the scripture, basically just, alludes just to Just the disdain that he had for his father. Probably, as I think you've been talking about, alluded to what he didn't do and then, you know, how he did. Just the, just, you know, the dislike and the way he uh, looked at his father. It's just hard to imagine. He, uh, uh, the arrogance and the, the animosity, all of those things. Right in the scripture that we read there, uh, it tells us another subtle fact about it. Why did he say, for he said, what was his rationale behind building his own monument? He had no family. He had shut himself not only off from his father, he has no family. He has become totally preoccupied with wresting the kingdom away from his father and being the king of the land to the exclusion of anything. He has no sons. Nobody to carry on to keep his name in remembrance. Boy, that's sad. Yeah. He had the same type of spirit as Saul. Mm -hmm. so Saul wasn't, even though Saul had a son, he certainly wasn't close to his son. Yeah. There's that relationship there. It, it uh, <coughs> the arrogance and also the, he separated himself from everything. And uh, I have no son to keep my name. And he called the pillar after his own name. He named, this is me. This is my monument. The funny thing about it is, well, not funny, he wasn't buried at his monument. The old adage, you know, who's buried in Grant's tomb? You know, and people say, well, I wonder if somebody else what? No, he was buried there. But Absalom was not buried in Absalom's monument. He was under a pile of rocks. And what is a symbol of a pile of rocks in Old Testament lore? What did they do to people that blasphemed or, or uh, were evil? They stoned them to death and left them under a pile of rocks. And they didn't want him to be remembered. You say, well, is it is it still able to be seen? No, it's there's no pillar, and we don't know which pile of rocks. Because <laughs> there's thousands of piles of rocks in Israel. 
We don't know where he, they didn't want him remembered at all because he was very forgettable as a leader. So, anything else about building a monument to himself? Anything else that you see there? What type of personality does it take to build a monument to yourself? A narcissist. A narcissist. <laughs> Uh, have you ever dealt with a narcissist? <coughs> yeah. Uh, I'll tell you. It's something else. You know how that in ancient times they used to think that all the planets revolved around the earth? That's how a narcissist thinks about life itself. It's all about me. It's all about me. And uh, I've heard some sad stories of some pastors that were very, I don't even know what the plural of, narcissistic. Yes, narcissistic. I think that's right. Narcissistic. Sounds good. Rolling on the tongue. Narcissistic. And they, their church is in trouble but it's got to be somebody else's fault. Couldn't be them. The, their world revolves around them and they can see no problem. It's everybody else's problem. It's all about me. It's all about me. And he builds a monument to himself. Okay. Here, boy. There we go. So after a certain point, we talked last time about he received advice. He received some evil advice, and he received some good advice uh, for David's sake. And one said, go and kill him right now before he has a chance to get an army together. And the other said, no, nah, just settle up things here in Jerusalem. And But it came a point where he, he listened to the other advice and he set his armies out to get David. They didn't care so much about defeating the army that had rallied around him because David still had his mighty men, the ones that were closest to him, that would not leave him. They were loyal to him. And they were willing to lay down their lives for him. David didn't want to fight. He didn't want to fight against Absalom. He would rather run. But his, his people stood and fought. But at this point, Absalom decides, I can't live like this. I'm going to kill Dad. I'm going to kill my own father. I'm going to kill the king. I'm going to take over everything that he had and I'm going to be the one in charge. So they go off and he goes off on a mission with his troops to go out and encounter David's forces who David is reluctant. He doesn't want him to fight. Well, if you do fight, don't hurt my son. He still is not willing for Absalom to 
suffer anything. He still loves him. And then we have the big battle. Well, before we get there, we have the big battle. And tens of thousands of Absalom's forces are killed. They were loyal to Absalom. But the people that were loyal to David knew how to fight. They were trained. They were his leaders. They were the ones that went off one time months and months and months and months and months and months ago. Remember when he was hiding in the cave of Abdullah? Remember that? And he says, oh, well, I'd give anything to have some of that ice cold well water from the spring in Bethlehem and several of his guys they said, excuse us they snuck out of the cave they went 50 miles on foot snuck in to Bethlehem got a container of water and brought it back to David remember what David did? he says I can't accept this this is too there was still humility in David's heart. He poured it out as an offering to the Lord. And they all worshiped the Lord in the cave of Abdullah. So, dedicated forces on David's side. And Absalom's forces ultimately suffer defeat. And Absalom takes off. On a run. Can I get somebody to read? Well, I lost my my verse there. I know it's somewhere, but I'm not going to worry with it right now. Uh, he takes off through the forest on a mule. Now, why is he on a mule? Any idea why the king would be riding on a mule? He didn't have a horse. Thank you. Do <laughs> <laughs> I could count on you, Jim? <laughs> Anybody else have an idea why he was riding on a mule? Two parts. He was trying to play into the prophecies of the the king coming, riding on a colt. Uh, it was in Zephaniah, but, but that was a symbolic thing where a king coming in to reign and to receive his throne would be on a royal steed. The other part is, they were up in the mountain country. Uh, you know there's not a whole lot of horse trails at the Grand Canyon. Have you noticed that? What do they have at the Grand Canyon? The mules, because they're very sure-footed on those narrow trails. And anybody that's seen pictures of Israel, rocks and more rocks and more and more rocks than that. Then also, you remember that Absalom had what kind of apparatus in his warfare? Chariots. They couldn't use them in the north country for all.
all the rocks and hills. And so David's men, skilled in going into the caves and, and fighting behind the rocky ledges, they beat him. And he takes off, Absalom takes off <clears throat> on a mule. And it says his head was caught. Now that's kind of hard to imagine. But it's very easy and most, most, I'd say 99.9% .9 believe it was his hair that got cut, that got caught in the branches of the low-hanging terebinth trees. So there he is, hanging between, suspended between heaven and earth, and there's nothing he can do. He's, he's caught. And what happens? Anybody know the story? Well, sure you do. I'm sure you know the story. He's left hanging there, and then Job. Don't leave me hanging. There's a, one of those lines. That, that's not where that came from, but, but it would be a good place to have it. Uh, he's hanging there, and Joab, one of the generals, gets word. He says, we, we, saw, we saw Absalom hanging from the tree by his hair. And he said, well, did you kill him? Says, no. David said, don't. I'm saying, go get him. You remember, Joab was the one who tried to make things right between Absalom and David. <coughs> it didn't work out well. So he said, I tried. And so they went and they used Absalom for target practice. and killed him. And it brings us to tonight's scripture. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, if only I had died in your place, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What are we learning here again about David? We recognize he's grieving his son. But even in the midst of this situation, what else do we find here about David? Anything? He has a heart like he has a heart like God's heart. For he, he's, he's not willing even for his son who's backstabbed and trying to kill him. We see the heart of the psalmist coming out. And how that that compassion was there even though this person was trying to do him in. Boy. The Bible says, and we've studied this before, that he was a man after God's own heart. <clears throat> he was not gloating over the death of his enemy. He was grieved over the death of his enemy. And we know the scripture well. I, I quote it often, I understand that. Aren't you tired of quoting it? No, I'm not. God is not willing that any should perish, 
but that all should come to repentance. And you say, well, where's, you know, why is he taking so long? He's taking so long because he's not willing for any to perish. You know, what would have happened if Jesus had returned for his church, for his believers, if, he ha if it happened yesterday? Somebody who was saved just today would have missed it. Right? Am I right or am I wrong? Uh, we want Jesus to come back. Yes, we do. But he's giving us more time to reach one more lost person, one more lost soul. You say, well, that's admirable, but what if it was your child? What if it was your your spouse, your relative, your father, your mother, your, your grandchildren. I praise, though I long for his return, believe me, I want to be reunited with my family that's in heaven. But I also don't want to leave any of my family behind on earth. That when we begin to grasp that kind of heart attitude, we get a picture of the love that God has. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Are you a person after the heart of God with a compassion for the lost? I know that Pastor Carissa is working behind the scenes and with committees and whatever, dealing with the general council of the assemblies because we are going to be the host site for a mammoth west side block party trying to reach people in our community uh, in July. And it's a lot of work. She was at a meeting today, two meetings today, and she's been at several other meetings and on the phone and online and everything. Because I don't know if you realize this, but the larger something gets and it's out at Springfield, uh, it the more complicated things get. Amen. You know, they, 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 you know they, they have all these grandiose plans, but somebody's got to put boots on the ground and ex execute those plans. And so, you know, in the, it's a lot of work. And I know what would happen if I said this to her. Honey, you know, this is, Carissa, this is too much work. <coughs> she has her Heavenly Father's heart. She's willing to do the work that if even one soul comes to know Jesus as a result of this, one family gets into uh, Revive Church or our church or whatever. One, one person gets healed of a disease. One person finds Jesus as Savior. It's worth it all. And I know I alluded to it earlier, and I've told you this before, I know. But as I'm talking about sons and all kinds of things, and the messages, I listened to one the other day that she had 
redone of my son's sermons. And I have flashbacks of this all the time. I'm in the hospital in Cleveland. The doctors cannot figure out how he's hung on as long as he's hung on. And he said, Dad, I need to talk to you. And he says, I want everybody else to go. And he can barely talk at this time. He says, Dad, I want you to do my funeral sermon. I want you to preach a salvation message. And if even one soul comes to know Jesus, everything I've been through will be worth it. Two were saved at that service. Many others were influenced. Having the heart of the Heavenly Father is an important thing in the world in which we live today. It's not about you being successful or having this or that or the other. It's about souls, folks. It's about souls. We're going to stop there tonight uh, before we tackle another aspect of 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking in the 2 Samuel closes out with some other stories. We'll be looking at them. And it closes out with the final words of David, which are pretty, pretty neat. And some of the final things that David did. So we're going to stop there for tonight. We'll pick up next time and go to prayer tonight. The young girl that we've told you about is on the youth staff up at Camp Syker. It was in total uh, liver shutdown. Uh, is showing some signs of improvement. She's on the uh, transplant list, and uh, she's acknowledging she's. They were fearful she was brain dead, uh, but she's acknowledging symbols and and voicing things to her family. So continue to pray for Emily. Other prayer request tonight. Unsaved loved ones? Yes. Uh, unspoken request situations that don't need everybody to know about it, just God. Other prayer requests tonight. Well, let's go to prayer this evening. And uh, I don't know if I can get a volunteer or not, but I can get a volunteer that would be willing to traverse over to the kitchen quietly and get the two cases of, of uh, cottage cheese for you and bring them back over. Okay. I would appreciate it. Okay. Well, let's go to prayer. Can we have a couple lead us out in a word of prayer? And I'll close in just a little bit.
But I pray that we just reach out to the ones that we haven't talked to and use us to touch someone's life this week, Father God. There's so many people that's hurting, so many homeless people, so many people that just don't have any hope and that we work with and we see every day. Lord, let us all have the heart that you've got for people that need your love. Lord, we thank you for this great church that we've got, the way we're growing, the way the pastor is leading us, Father God. I pray you watch over him and his family. You keep him healthy. You keep him well, Father God. Continue to give him the words that we need to hear. Be with the church this weekend. Lord, just bring someone in this weekend that don't know this, that they can see you and get saved and find out that you're the coolest person to have in your life, Father God. Mm-hmm. We do thank you for the many blessings you've given all of us. We put this all in your precious name. Amen. Lord, we we do have so many that are on our hearts and our minds that that if you returned, they wouldn't be ready. Lord, help us to do whatever we can do through your strength. (coughs) Give us guidance and direction. Lead people across their path. Put obstacles in their way that they have to look up to you. Uh, Put them in situations where someone comes across their path that they can't deny it was a God thing and show that you love them enough to send someone to speak to them about their soul. We pray, Father, for situations that are out of our hands that only you can work in. We looked at some of the broken relationships in families and some that for years have been estranged from each other We're praying, Father, that you would use us to reconcile and to to touch lives. We pray, Father God, for the upcoming outreaches uh, this summer, the the seek and save that which was lost, the the block party, the, the various other ministries that are going to be hosted here at Trinity and on on our property. Father, we pray for our, our missionaries. Uh, that are that are getting ready to leave and those that are going to be coming back and staying with us. We lift them up tonight to you as well. We pray, Father, for your hand to be upon our missionaries. They, they're going into unique situations and they're going to need to fully rely yes. upon you. They need a prayer backing. We pray that we would be faithful in that. We do pray for this coming Sunday service that, Lord, from Sunday school to the praise and worship to the message you've laid upon my heart to share that, Father God, you would speak to people's hearts. You would draw those that have become lax into full service. Those who have drifted, let them come on home. Those that don't know you, Let them find they've got a Father that loves them, that cares for them. We ask all of these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 How does cheese in the back? All right. How does cheese in the back? Grab some cottage cheese. I don't want any left over. Take it, give it to a friend.